0: Well, good morning, friends. Please do turn back to John chapter 6. And we come this morning to the end of this glorious chapter, verses 60 to 71. That's page 892 in the Visitor's Bibles. Jesus has been expounding what it means to be the bread of life and ending with that shocking saying which he doubled down on, that unless we eat his very flesh and drink his very blood, there is no hope for us of life in him. And the story ends from verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no use at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away as well, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus said, answered them did i not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil he spoke of judas the son of simon iscariot for he one of the 12 was going to betray him well let's pray lord jesus speak words of life to us we pray And through these words, hold us fast to your cross. For we ask it for your own namesake. Amen. Well, you could hear a pin drop. The preacher sits down and in that heavy quiet, you give thanks. Because you know that whatever else happened today, you just fed On the bread of heaven, your mind turns to the friend three rows back, the one you've been reading the Bible with for over a year now, loving, praying for, longing for, and you rejoice that this was the Sunday she came back to church. The Sunday the Lord Jesus Christ spoke words of life and everyone knew it. And then that heavy reverend silence is broken by the scraping of a chair. Footsteps heading towards the door. And a moment later, bing! Every phone lights up with the same notification, the one you've dreaded seeing. That friend you have loved and prayed for and longed for has left the WhatsApp. (laughs) And your heart sinks right into your boots. Well, that's a small mercy, but I suspect this Capernaum synagogue did not have a church family-wide WhatsApp group to compound that awkwardness, but they had just heard what was surely one of the most powerful offers of the gospel in all of human history. One of the longest sermons recorded in the Bible, and staggeringly generous. Come to me, dip your hands in my blood, says Jesus, feed on my flesh crucified in your place, and I will give you life forever. So what was the response back then when people heard that message right from the very lips of the most loving and persuasive preacher there ever was? Well, one by one, the response was a scraping of chairs and footsteps towards the door, not from random visitors and members of the public, but from his disciples, the ones who followed him, who've shown an interest in, who've read the Bible with him. But now they're staring at their feet, and first in a trickle and then a flood, the pews empty, and they melt away. Can you imagine how utterly disheartening that must have been? By the time it's over, you get the impression there are just 12 men left. Pathetic. His very closest friends, the core of this little family, looking on in utter dismay as everything they've worked for seems to collapse. And even they are so crushed and discouraged, surely. That they aren't quite sure whether to stick around or pack it all in. Well, this is a sermon that comes with a trigger warning because this morning, John is showing us what are possibly the two most offensive truths of the Christian faith. One is the reason people walk away from Jesus and the other, maybe the only one worse, is the only reason people don't But here's the strange thing. John is using these two deeply offensive truths at the end of this glorious chapter to drive into our hearts what is actually a deeply reassuring message. In fact, it's a message that I suspect we could not keep going without. Because if this was how people back then who were interested in the Bible responded to the richest and most beautiful sermon that Jesus Christ himself ever preached, well, what do we expect will happen today when we share his truth through our rough, awkward personalities and our clumsy words and our ordinary little church Here's the message. It is through apparent weakness and failure that Jesus Christ in his irresistible power will win the world one soul at a time, beginning with this little discouraged group of 12 men. Just two points this morning. First in verses 60 to 65, the cross we can't stomach. Why is it that human beings walk away from Jesus Christ? Well, it's because the very thing at the heart of his gospel is impossible for us to stomach. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a harsh saying. Who would want to listen to that? So what is it that they found so hard? Well, the it in verse 60 refers back to everything Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue since he fed the 5,000, that he is no mere king or miracle worker or one of the many possible paths to heaven. No, he is the one sent from heaven to give us eternal life so that if we want to live, the only way is to feed on his very flesh and blood. In other words, to take his brutal death on the cross inside ourselves like food, as the thing that we personally need to take advantage of and benefit from. To feed on him is to say, that was my sin. The death I deserved. He was consumed so that I could have bread. And the only way I can live is to take that life he spent for me, to feed on his sacrifice, get my hands dirty in it. Now, at one level, that is the very simplest way of explaining something that you could imagine, because food is something every one of us gets, isn't it? Every one of us gets that without food, you will starve to death. Every one of us gets that when you're given food, it nourishes your body and rejoices your heart. Everyone can understand what God means when he says, this is my son given for you, broken for you, the only food that can feed your dying soul. It is about the simplest and most intuitive thing he could say. And so they aren't saying here, it's hard to understand. They're saying it's hard to swallow. Calvin puts it like this, the true hardness is in their hearts, not in Jesus' saying. Because to really swallow that message, we have to be far more humble than many of us know how to be. Even now, as a Christian, I like to think that my life is basically on track. My heart is basically in the right place. It's just that every so often my bad side gets the better of me and I take a little detour. This means that my life is fundamentally off track, irretrievably off track, so much so that there is nothing I can do to fix it. Jesus' death for me is still the only solution. And now, even as a Christian who trusts him, I don't simply have to get back on the path every so often. I have to fundamentally turn around every day from my whole direction of travel as a person, my natural identity and longings and choices, and I have to get my hands dirty in his blood all over again, a whole life of repenting and feeding on him. Now, who fancies selling that message to the world? Who would listen to it? Jesus knows that, doesn't he? He can hear the cogs turning inside them, verse 61. They are scandalized by this idea of benefiting from his death And so in verse 62, he pushes the challenge to his disciples even further. Are you scandalized by this? You wait to see what's coming. There is something coming that is far more scandalous even than the claim that Jesus came down from heaven to give us life. And that is the way that John shows us Jesus returning to heaven. Because this book doesn't actually tell us about his ascension, or at least not in the normal way like the other gospels. The moment of Jesus' ultimate glory in this book isn't when he's lifted up into heaven, it's when he's lifted up on a cross. For John, that is where the ascension starts, the means of Jesus reclaiming the glory he had before the world began is what looks to human beings like utter weakness and failure and degradation. But it's there that he triumphs. He hangs in victory as he gives up his flesh for the life of the world. And so verse 62 is the question that Jesus puts to every last disciple. How will you react when you see me like that? When you are faced with the cross, either it will be the scandal you cannot overcome, or you will look beyond the degradation and the shame, and you'll see the love and glory of heaven poured out for you. And all your proud qualms that eating my flesh will pale away because you'll know there could be no other hope for you than this. Now, which will it be, proud offense or humble receiving? Well, here comes the truth that is even harder to stomach than the cross itself. Ultimately, which of those two responses you settle into is not really something you can determine. If you're here today clinging to his cross as a Christian, then you know, don't you, that it is not ultimately because you chose to do that. It's because verse 63, his spirit humbled you and gave you life. And if you're here today thinking, I'm not really sure If I'm ready to throw myself in completely with these Christians, then the bad news, friends, is that you are also in far less control over that than you realize. You may think you're on the fence. You may think you're evaluating Jesus, evaluating these Christians. You may think that right now you are weighing up the weirdness and the cost of it all and coming to a decision, but actually... That is not ultimately what is happening here. Your flesh, your own human power is no use at all when it comes to the state of your soul. Otherwise, if you wanted to, well, you could throw yourself in wholeheartedly right now, couldn't you? But you can't do it. If you haven't after all this time, It's not because you haven't decided to yet. It's because you can't. That is offensive, isn't it? In fact, even if the right time came along, the moment that so many human beings think they will finally make everything right with God when it's desperate, when I really need him most, actually, you'll find then, as so many others have, that nothing has changed and you still can't do it. And perhaps Jesus is spelling this out so clearly because in his love, he knows that the thing you need most right now is to be humbled, to stop evaluating him and cry out to him instead. Only the spirit can give life and that spirit and that life has been pouring out on us all along because it's in the very words that Jesus speaks. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, so full that when he speaks, it's the Spirit who pours out. If you want a Spirit-filled church, you'll find it wherever there's a church filled with Jesus' words. And a church, by the way, who ignores Jesus' words It's a church that's empty of his spirit. doesn't matter how much feeling there is in the music, how spectacular and supernatural the claims are. It's all in him. And when those words of Jesus bury themselves in a human heart, it's eternal life that grows. Just as It's sunlight that generates growth for plants. It's fuel that generates warmth for our homes. It is the words of Jesus which generate eternal life for human beings. Because when Jesus' words come to us through the Spirit, we get Jesus himself. In his every word, we're feeding on him. It means the single most important thing we can ever pray when we come to the Bible, when we come to church, is God, give me the humility to listen to Jesus' words today. Let me hear his voice without my pride taking offense and getting the huff and shrugging it all off. Let me cling to what I hear, these words of spirit and life, But it was no surprise at all to Jesus that that is a prayer a lot of people are not willing to pray. He came knowing from the start that some wouldn't believe and that one would even betray him to death. And that is why it was so important for his disciples to understand that this is how it's meant to be. It's the doctrine that we call predestination that God is ultimately the one in control of our eternal destinies so that even our genuinely free choices are somehow his to bend and to sway. And maybe that is something which has always struck you as a cold, abstractly philosophical doctrine. But look again at verse 65. It's something that Jesus felt his disciples needed to know. It is a practical, loving, pastoral doctrine because it humbles those of us who think we're in control, who need to know that actually, even if we wanted to believe, only God could persuade and enable us to embrace his son. But even more importantly here... It's a doctrine that reassures those of us who see so many people come close to Jesus and end up walking away. It wasn't that we failed. It wasn't that Jesus failed. There are some the Father chose to grant life to and others he chose to let walk away. And even one who he chose to keep right at the heart of things, only then to deliver his Messiah over to death. It is how things were meant to be. So don't be surprised if it's how they are today. Someone very wise said to me recently, the thing you need for ministry is an endless capacity for disappointment. And we're not told that to depress us or to drag us down. Actually, it's quite the opposite. We're told it because without knowing that, loving Jesus' church would crush us. Evangelism would crush us. But you've met people, haven't you, with a passion for evangelism? They face more crushing disappointment in their lives than the rest of us put together. And yet, what is the thing that almost all real evangelists have in common? They are incredibly joyful, enthusiastic people. So enthusiastic that it's infectious. Don't we need a bit of that? Well, this is why I told you, said Jesus. Because it is the only thing that will keep us cheerfully holding out a crucified king to a world that says thanks, but no. The cross we can't stomach And then in verses 66 to 71, wonderful truth, the grace we can't resist. It's as if for this little paragraph, the whole world shrinks down to 12 men. It's incredibly poignant, isn't it, this scene? Many of his disciples turned back. Literally, they departed to the things they'd left behind. They unfollowed, unsubscribed, unfriended and they walked away. And Jesus, this same Jesus who hears every grumble and doubt of our hearts looks at the last few in the eye and he asks the most penetrating question they will ever be asked. Friends, you don't want to walk away as well, do you? Will you keep going with me or will you go with everyone else There are times in our lives when it is easy to sit in church and follow Jesus. We can come along here. We can get something out of it. We can still be part of a crowd. You can be a Christian for a long, long time without really being tested. But the tear does always come eventually. The moment it will hurt if we stay behind with this Odd little bunch of believers. Maybe it's you guys here at school who need to hear this question the most. One day, you will be faced with exactly this. Maybe the Lord is beginning to ask you right now. You don't want to walk away as well, do you, friend? Now, I can't tell you when that question will really hit you hard. I can't tell you how much it's going to hurt, but I can promise that it will. Whether it is a relationship or a lifestyle or a group of friends we really want to have, for every Christian, there is always a tear. And then you'll see friends telling you you can have both, Jesus and whatever else it is. And you'll see other friends, the ones you thought were Christian friends, maybe some you've sat next to in this very room, walking away disillusioned and resenting Christ because what they wanted from him, some earthly savior, he would not be for them. And what he offered, life with him forever, they would not take. And seeing that, seeing those people walk away, that will shake you as much as it must have shaken these 12 That's when this tear hurts more than anything. And so we need to pray, don't we, right now, today, that when the time comes, we would know how much we need to keep on feeding on Jesus and his cross so that we can answer like Peter does here. These are words to keep you a Christian, aren't they? Lord, to who else would we go You are the one with words of spirit and life, and we need those life-giving words. He might not be my earthly king who I can control and demand whatever I want from, but verse 69, he is God's holy one set apart to offer himself as the holiest sacrifice ever made to bring me what I desperately need and I've come, says Peter, to believe in him, so have all of us. We've come to know him. So where else would we go? That is the question, isn't it? When you are staring down that great fork in the road with two destinies stretching out in front of you, then whatever else you decide to do, do not forget to ask yourself this question. What alternative is there to clinging to the cross of Christ? What is the other road? What religion, what philosophy, what politician, what blogger, what gamer, what YouTuber, what career advisor can speak words into my soul with the power to feed and rejoice and comfort and satisfy me forever? And we know the answer, don't we? Take Jesus away and everything is empty. His words are spirit and life. Without them, it is meaningless death and despair. And so 12 men face the eternal fork in the road. And even among them, there's one who's already sold his soul and yet is right here in what seems like such a discouraging end to this chapter, it's right here that something astonishing is happening just under the surface. Right when everything seems to be at its most weak and pathetic, Christ lays the foundations that he'll use to win the world. The chapter began with 5,000 starving souls lost in the wilderness, overwhelming needs, and Jesus took a little boy's lunch, five bread rolls and two fish, hopelessly inadequate for the task. But in Jesus' hands, it was enough to feed all Israel. The chapter ends with a world of rejection and unbelief, overwhelming needs, And yet Jesus has drawn to himself 12 little worried men, hopelessly inadequate for the task. And yet without knowing it, the very words Peter has just said give proof of Jesus' sovereign, irresistible power. It seems as if everyone has walked away, but in fact, it's these 12 who Jesus has been interested in all along. You see, Peter, did I not choose you, the 12? He's been teaching us the doctrine all through the chapter. Now he's embodied it in the lives of 12 men who didn't drift away with the rest. Look back and you see this is where it's always been heading. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father draws him. Those words, Peter, came out of your mouth because I chose you in love and I've been drawing you by the heart all along. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. His grace is irresistible. It will not fail. And when they come to me, I will keep them safe and hold to them forever even when they're frightened and discouraged and all they see is weakness and failure, they will never slip out of my hands. These 12 are the proof that things are not as they seem. Now, John has never used this term, the 12, until this very moment. He never tells us when the apostles are appointed, it's something he assumes we know again from the other gospels, but the role they play in his gospel is huge. In fact, when Jesus' public ministry is shouted down in the first half of the book, he narrows all his attention to this little band of brothers. 11 of them will feed on these life-giving words of Jesus, and then by God's power, they will feed those words to us. We're feeding on them right now, aren't we? Through the book one of them wrote, 11 men were enough to reach the whole world. You see, Jesus doesn't need lots of likes and lots of followers any more than he needed lots of loaves and lots of fish. He is more than enough But first, they will have to face one disappointment that will be more crushing and painful to bear than anything else, when one of their own betrays Jesus to death. And even that, you see, is completely in his control. It's not a surprise to Jesus. He kept Judas close, knowing how this would end, And so through 11 of these men, he will win the world, and through the 12th, he will give his life for the world. So do you see how deeply encouraging and reassuring this ought to be? If this is who Jesus is, then nothing we do in him could ever be in vain. No amount of discouragement could ever make this not worth it. No prayer could ever be pointless. No work could ever be too small and weak. No criticism too sharp. Because a savior who wins the world through death and weakness is not defeated by rejection. Why do we fear rejection so much then? Why does it knock us for six and hold us back? This is the way. Humbly clinging to the cross as our food and cheerfully holding it out, come what may, a pattern of death and weakness that through his irresistible grace brings glorious life, one soul at a time, beginning with a handful of men but never stopping, never failing until every last child is gathered home. Well, let's bow our heads and give him thanks. Lord Jesus, we thank you that through such small things, scoffed at, rejected, weak, you in your infinite power took away the sins of the world. We thank you that though we have no power in us even to make ourselves believe, you have all the sovereign grace you will ever need. We thank you that you speak words of eternal life and we pray that we would keep on humbly hearing those words so that we would boast forever in nothing but the scandalous cross that you bore for us. By your love and power, keep us feeding on that cross, even when we feel small and weak and the whole world seems to laugh. For we ask it all to the praise of your goodness and your might and your love. Amen.